I know there's a lot of controversy about defining these things, but to me, it's uh, business as usual isn't good enough, and we've known that for a long time. We know that we can do much better with carbon and energy efficiency. So uh, when people say, well, you have to define sustainability, I'm, I'm not really in agreement with that. We just have to do better. I mean, the biggest issue we have right now is carbon's an existential threat to the planet. So we definitely have to cut it back. And buildings are, from different estimates, around responsible for around 50% to 40 to 50% of carbon in their operations. So that's a big chunk, and we can do a lot better. Um, we have the technology. There's very few excuses other than money. And, uh, you know, if you put it on a balance between money and survival, I think I go for survival. Sustainable Buildings Canada uh, started in about 2003, and uh, we're a nonprofit. We are dedicated to better buildings, uh, improved energy efficiency, um, resilience. We promote anything and everything that uh, is cutting edge and essentially better for the environment in terms of the built environment. Green Building Festival started in 2005, and uh, it's a, it was a long and winding road, but um, we present sort of the latest and greatest, the cutting-edge thinkers from around the world. So we tend to have things that are coming in terms of green buildings and green cities. I'm Tom Panessa, and this is Spacing Radio. From the broom closet at 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto, Ontario, I'm Glenn Bowerman, and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. This month, we'll be giving you a preview of the annual Green Building Festival happening in Toronto this coming October 11th, which you can read about at gbf18.com. We'll talk to Dutch artist and innovator Dan Rusegaard, whose installations merge beauty with sustainability. From glowing bike lanes to smart highways to towers that turn smog into jewelry, Dan's works are part art piece, part infrastructure, and part call to arms. And we talked to Scott Armstrong, Senior Facade Specialist at WSP, about the opportunities presented when retrofitting existing buildings. But first, Vivian Manask is the Principal Architect at Manask Isaac. She received many accolades in her career, including the Alberta Order of Excellence last year, the province's highest honour. Her work exemplifies adaptive design with a special focus on leveraging existing assets, including the surrounding community and stakeholders. Stand by. So the first question I wanted to ask you, uh, just because uh, there's a there's a lot of sort of 
what I think has been called greenwashing going around. You know, everyone agrees sort of in principle that uh, green is good. We want green uh, products and we want green neighborhoods. We want green buildings. Uh, what to you is a green building, though, a truly green building? Well, I think it depends, uh, of course, very much whether it's a, an existing building or a new building. And when we're talking about existing buildings, uh, what's interesting is that existing buildings have a lot of embodied energy in them, a lot of embodied carbon in them. So uh, a green building in that context is a building that uh, is, you know, better uh, better performing than it was when it was originally built. In other words, we can reimagine existing buildings, make them more energy efficient, make them more um, healthy for people and the planet, uh, but not tear them down. And the, the key thing is to not tear them down because, um, you know, existing buildings really are an, an important uh, resource. And so I think say the, the key thing with, with existing buildings is that, uh, that they have a, an embodied energy in them. When it comes to new buildings, of course, there's a whole different conversation. So I think that it's really important to distinguish um, when we're thinking about green buildings, uh, about both of those things. Right. Uh, for the existing buildings, you even have an ongoing project uh, called Reimagine uh, that specifically looks at that with the sort of ethos that the greenest building is the one that already exists. Exactly. Uh, what are some of the assets of these existing buildings in terms of uh, you know healthy sustainability? Well, I think first and foremost, they have embodied carbon. So, you know, what that means is that all the material that went into making those back in the first place um, have uh, resources in them, right? There, There's steel and concrete and uh, all kinds of existing content in those materials. And if you, if you tear them down, then uh, you lose, you know, you send to the landfill all of that. Uh, all of that energy, right? Right. So, so that's really at the heart of the of the conversation of reimagining is, you know, what can we do with existing buildings to focus on ways to repurpose them, ways to um, reuse them, ways to find new function for old buildings, so that they, um, so that they have a, an extended life, so that we can, you know, continue to to find function for them um, for another hundred years, let's say. So the longer we can keep an existing building, uh, the, the better we do for the planet. Right. It's sort of that reduce, reuse, recycle sort of ethos. It really is. It really is. And in terms of new buildings, I mean, if you get to build something from you know the ground up, uh, uh, how, do, how do you go about tackling a project with a sort of sustainable mentality uh, at the forefront? Well, very, very much the first thing that you want to do is, again, uh, reduce your energy footprint, right? So it's still that same reduce, reuse, recycle, but you start with reduce. And so the idea is to, to find ways to absolutely reduce the amount of energy you need. So as many passive strategies as possible is really the starting point for a new building. And, of course, if you can create a building that generates uh, even more energy than it uh, consumes that's even better. Uh, you're talking about maybe installing solar paneled roofs or uh, that kind of thing. That's right. 
And, uh, you know, uh, when we talk about, uh, you know, environmental sustainability, uh, that kind of thing, uh, you know, there is, some would argue, a sort of moral and ethical duty, but there's also opportunity oftentimes. uh, These sort of uh, uh, lead certified buildings kind of pay for themselves in in the way that they... uh, they don't just uh, bleed energy, you know, right? They're better insulated. They're they're cooler in the summer naturally and warmer in the winter naturally, That those kind of things. Uh, can you talk about the opportunities of a healthy building? Oh, very much so, very much so. I mean, a, a healthy building really uh, pays dividends, not just on your utility bill, which is, you know, the, the obvious part, but it actually um, pays dividends in terms of... Uh, well-being, the comfort of the occupants, and uh, as you know, if you're, let's say, building an office building or uh, occupying an office building, uh, the biggest cost of any office building is actually the, the payroll of all the people that's, that are in the building. Right. And so, you know, if you can make build, buildings that make people healthier uh, and reduce absenteeism and reduce sick days and reduce... Um, you know, allergies and so on, um, <clears throat> that pays dividends at yet another level beyond even just the energy savings. Right. And uh, you've been uh, championed as a, you're, you know, hailed as a sort of green champion in, in terms of building. But your work is also typified by uh, the uh, the amount of sort of uh, front-loaded consultation and cooperation that you do with the communities that you're building in. I'm thinking especially of the uh, indigenous uh, people that you've worked with in various communities, uh, the original stewards of this land. Uh, can you talk about how uh, collaboration and consultation goes hand in hand with uh, green, healthy building? Absolutely, um, and thanks for asking that because that's a really important question. Uh, in fact, our our work on green buildings really started uh, from the work that we were doing with First Nations and continue to do to this day very extensively with First Nations across the country. Um, but it is in the process of consulting people um, that we discover the most thoughtful ways to um, to really use the resources at hand, right? To use the resources of the community, to use the resources of uh, the people in, in the community, and to use the resources of the land itself. So, you know, how we orientate the building um, makes a difference, right? Where, where uh, the building is relative to the north wind makes a difference. You can reduce your energy footprint by simply rotating the building so that it takes advantage of the sun. And we learned that from consulting with people who have been living on on land, on an area of land for a long time. In addition to that, um, the consultation that we do with communities also extends to consultation with um, engineering consultants and with other technical experts. So what happens is that we uh, create integrated buildings that... uh, become very efficient because we take advantage of the uh, the synergies between uh, the building building systems. So, for example, if you you know make buildings better insulated, then you need less mechanical systems. So that kind of thing right. you can only achieve that by working very collaboratively as a team um, from uh, from the start of the of the planning process from the start of the design process. You need the the intelligence of both the, you know, the elders and the community and the youth and uh, and the the technical experts 
they all have to be part of the conversation of how we achieve the best results on a given on a given site. Which means that that sustainable design is very very site specific. It's not generic. You can't just take a building that's net zero in one place and rebuild it in another place and hope it will still be net zero. Right. So there's no cookie cutter. There's no cookie cutter. It's it's the process that's critical. It's that integrated collaborative process. Um, you know, nowadays, some people call that integrated project delivery. We call it integrated design. The import, most important thing is to take advantage of the, the collective intelligence of all of the different participants in the planning process, in the design process, and ultimately in the process of the people who are going to be uh, living, working, and playing in that building. The other aspect of, of community engagement is that if people are involved in the planning and design, then they also want to be involved in the building. And then if they're involved in the building, there's a sense of ownership, and uh, with ownership comes uh, stewardship. Right. And stewardship means you take care of things, and then they last longer. And then you don't need a new one as quickly. <laughs> right. Um and oftentimes when we talk about sustainability, uh, it goes hand in hand with talk about uh, resiliency. And uh, so uh, I've noticed that a lot of your work also sort of uh, incorporates ideas that, uh, you know, scientists largely agree that uh, we are going to get more and more extreme weather events, no matter where you live, basically in Canada or elsewhere. Uh, so right. how do you plan for climate change when you don't, we don't really know what's going to happen, but we, they, we have trends and, uh, you know, a new building or even an adapted building does have to sort of take into account that uh, we, we are uh, going to experience more and more extreme weather. Absolutely. Well, you know, I think that's really, really critical. And you're exactly right. There's, there's no question that we have to design for resilience and for climate change adaptation. Um, what we're doing is, strangely enough, we go back to a lot of everything old is new again. You know, things like windows that open on buildings. I mean, it's, it's amazing how, you know, if all your building systems uh, shut down because you have this huge uh, lightning strike and there's no power in your, in your building, well, if your building has windows that open, amazingly enough, you can still occupy that building. As soon as you seal everything up tight and you rely entirely on uh, artificial systems, you um, become very dependent on... Um, you know, on everything working, right? And so resilience, to my mind, is really, uh, in, in a large measure, using passive strategies as much as possible. So things that are really simple, windows that open, fresh air, sunshine, uh, having buildings that are comfortable if you close them up and can be well insulated and well sealed, but also buildings that open up readily uh, so that if there is a fire or if there is a power outage or if there is, uh, heat wave, you can actually still get air in the building and you can still be comfortable in your in your place of work or place of living. And uh, in your uh, speech to, uh, to the festival, uh, you're going to be talking about emerging trends. I'm not going to make you go through all the trends, but uh, just in, in general terms, are we trending towards sustainability when we're talking about architecture and design? I think so. I think we're very much trending that way. I think there's more and more interest uh, in as I say, both new buildings, uh, chasing net zero, people looking towards net zero buildings, uh, reducing the, the environmental footprint of the building, adding um, on-site energy generation like solar is becoming a, a bigger and bigger 
uh, trend. Uh, and at the same time, we're seeing uh, that attention being paid to repurposing, reimagining, sometimes it's called adaptive reuse, you know, re- doing something with existing buildings. Uh, I think is is definitely starting to to get people's attention. I mean, for far too long in North America, we've been in the in the grip of everything new is good and everything old is is not so good. And uh, I think that tide is turning, and people are starting to realize that existing buildings, whether they be you know beautiful historical buildings or rather ugly you know buildings from the seventies, um, either way, they can be made. Uh, healthier, more sustainable, more beautiful, more functional, and they can have another 100 years of life. If we start to think about buildings as being um, 100-year life instead of, you know, 25 or 50-year life, I think that starts to change the paradigm, starts to change the decisions that we make. All right. Well, Vivian, uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. Uh, Thanks so much for taking the time. Great. My pleasure. Talk to you soon. And you can hear Vivian address emerging trends in architecture and sustainability at the Green Building Festival. The early bird admission price for the fest is available until August 31st at gbf18.eventbrite.com. That's B-R-I-T-E. Now, part of the festival will include the Healthy Break Green Retrofit Walking Tour, where attendees will explore the Richmond Adelaide Center, a massive 2.4 million square foot complex composed of multiple towers, Some of these towers are new, some were built in the 60s. The jumble of downtown architectural styles and eras present a unique challenge when we talk about healthy buildings. Scott Armstrong has made a career bridging the gap between architecture and engineering, and he explains the process of giving buildings a facelift. So Scott, uh, we are here at 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto. It is a an historic building that has been retrofitted for a new context, um, multi-use, uh, new purposes, and uh, that's something that you're very familiar with in your work. Uh, can you tell us a bit about what you do? Sure. I'm a building science consultant uh, focusing on facade engineering and facade consulting. Mm-hmm. A lot of the work that I do is retrofitting existing buildings, whether they're heritage or um, mid-century, uh, historically significant right. or otherwise. Um Sometimes it's a matter of simply doing life cycle replacement work or repair work, um, but often it ventures into the larger scale whole building renewal uh, where we're looking at um, improving the, the performance of the entire building and oftentimes with the mechanical and electrical systems as well uh, to try to see some significant improvement in comfort and energy savings and performance. And a lot of your work focuses on recladding. Uh, for our listeners, can you sort of unpack what recladding is? It's a big topic. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say recladding can take many different forms. It can be something simple like literally just replacing the cladding that was there with a similar cladding. Mm-hmm. Uh, we may go so far as to remove the entire exterior of a skin of a building right. and replace it wholesale with an entirely new system. Uh, which some people might call reskinning, uh, or um, or recladding, um, or sometimes overcladding, where we're taking new cladding systems and attaching them to existing backup structures or existing cladding systems. And cladding in buildings could be it could be brick, it could be glass. It uh, 
That's right. Right. Yeah. Um, cladding or facades or skins. It's all sort of the same envelopes. Um, yeah. Building enclosures. Uh, it's that often that material that you see when you're standing outside the building, looking at it and what you, uh, see when you're standing inside looking out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so in your work, you, you do this sort of recladding work, uh, this repurposing, uh, with, with an eye to sort of environmental sustainability or even resiliency. Uh, to some degree, yes. Uh, not all of our work has that language attached to it. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes we're doing major recladding work simply because the skin or the enclosure has reached the end of its service life. You can imagine, uh, I mean, this building that we're in is, well, I imagine 100 years old or more. I believe so. Um, and that exterior skin was built to last that long plus, and so it can be maintained almost indefinitely. Uh, a lot of our modern buildings that are made of glass and steel and, and aluminum, the the glass for sure, uh, it will fail, likely within t- anywhere from 20 to 40 years. So you're faced with a full uh, reglazing program, replacing all of the glass at least. At that time, um, the question is often asked, well, is this our chance to change the performance of the building or the aesthetic of the building? Um, because we have to do a life cycle, large scale project anyways. Uh, and so that's when we start to get into these more interesting conversations about uh, resilience. You know, how will the building respond to the changing climate? Mm-hmm. Um, how will the building respond as a function of the enclosure to the people that are in them, the densification or the repurposing of space, changing expectations around comfort, um, increased access to daylighting uh, or glare control even. Yeah. Um, and so that's where those kinds of larger projects start to evolve into a slightly different discussion. Um, and sometimes an aging asset, which may look a bit tired, uh, be a bit dated, have an old appearance, can be completely updated or brought into the, the current design language um, with all of these other performance improvements. A lot of our retrofit work does consider uh, what's currently there and then how we might be able to improve on it to Mm -hmm. um, either make it more comfortable or more energy efficient. The unfortunate reality is uh, if it's just a reglazing program, you're often hamstrung by the framing that's there. Okay. And so you can put in a very good performing or high performing glazing unit and not necessarily see the kinds of savings that you might expect because the framing is um, undermining the performance. And the framing is? The framing is the aluminum components that are surrounding the glass, for example. Right. Um, so to put to put it into perspective, um, the opaque portions, like the parts that you can't see through on a typical condominium tower, mm-hmm. might have R15 of insulation in the spandrel panel, it's called, the opaque portion of the wall. By the time you factor in all of the framing losses, so all of the heat loss that travels through the mullions and exits through the building, that R15 translates to usually about an R4 or maybe less. So no matter how much insulation I put in that system, I'm only going to get so much back out of it because of the framing components. Right. So with glass, uh, it's it's about thermal performance, but it's also about glare and, and solar heat gain and, and occupant comfort. So yeah, if the glass units were installed uh, in the original construction and they had high solar heat gain, and it's a floor to ceiling piece of glass, that's not going to be a comfortable space to be in. Uh, and so we would probably select a glass that has a lower solar heat gain coefficient to help reduce the amount of solar heat coming into the building. Right. That improves comfort, 
uh, and it also helps control uh, peak cooling load, for example. You can turn your your AC down yeah, because exactly. you're not boiling. Yeah. <laughs> or you don't have to have your blinds down as often, right? right? And you can enjoy the million-dollar view you paid for as opposed to always having your blinds down and never getting to look out through your windows. Right. So in your work, what are some challenges that uh, you, you see uh, that uh, are presented in a city like Toronto or maybe other Canadian cities, Vancouver? Um, I would say... There are there are many challenges. Uh, the The discussion around building enclosure retrofits is changing, and not necessarily relying so heavily on the the direct energy payback. Uh, the unfortunate reality is that those costs are not really uh, that payback is not really attractive. If you were to reskin a building, the cost for that um, is not readily or not rapidly repaid through energy savings. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are seeing, um, a better understanding about the integration of enclosures and mechanical systems, for example, mm-hmm. um, and how enclosures can affect comfort and affect the appearance of a building and maybe increase the value of the asset. Right. So, um, the, the challenges are certainly around the financial side. It's not inexpensive to do this kind of work. Mm-hmm. Um, depending on the size of the building, you're doing significant overhead protection to protect the public from the work that's happening above. Right. You're doing it in an occupied building, so you're probably doing it after hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are a bunch of um, logistical challenges to doing it, uh, and there are some cost challenges to doing it. Um, and then depending, again, on how extensive the retrofit is, whether you keep or reuse the pieces that are there mm-hmm. um, greatly influences your opportunity for change. Right. And and then figuring out what is there and how you can manipulate or install something new within that existing frame uh, becomes also another design challenge. So how do I how do I design a system that will fit within an existing module? Um, and still provide the kinds of improvements or enhancements that I'm looking for. And I guess that must be, uh, of course, a, a particularly a concern when you're dealing with heritage sites or older older buildings. Yeah. And uh, when we look at heritage buildings and, say, mass masonry heritage buildings, and we look to improve thermal performance by maybe adding insulation to the interior, mm-hmm. uh, that increases risks uh, to the heritage fabric uh, through freeze-thaw and deterioration of the masonry. Uh, so there's a number of um, testing procedures we can follow to assess the quality and durability of the brick, for example, mm-hmm. and then decide whether it makes sense to put insulation on the inside and how much. Um, and then once we once we decide on that, uh, we don't necessarily have to change the exterior fabric. That's really the goal, usually in heritage restoration or heritage retrofit, is to maintain at least the exterior fabric. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's often the heritage defining elements are found on the outside of the building. Right. Um, the, the bigger challenge is when you're trying to incorporate heritage elements into new buildings where you also want to protect the interior heritage fabric. Uh, so that then the, the opportunities for improvements are hampered even further because now I can't do anything to the inside and I can't do anything to the outside. Right. Um, the, the, the good thing is that energy is a balance. Um, and so we can, in some cases, compensate for that poor performance in one small area of the building by making a very high performing portion somewhere else. Right. Okay. Um, and then I would also say you can, 
reduce air leakage, for example. Uh, heritage buildings are notoriously quite drafty, leaky buildings. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you do um, you know, reasonable measures not to change the appearance but to improve air tightness, then you're going a long way to reducing energy consumption and also improving comfort. Can you talk about some projects or a project that you've done in Toronto? Uh, so on the commercial building side, uh, one of our large projects right now is um, the Richmond Adelaide Centre, which is two commercial office towers uh, that are being reclad. Mm-hmm. Um, in that particular project, uh, we're replacing all of the vision units, all of the glass that you can see through with new glass uh, that you can see through. And we're pl- replacing all of the metal opaque spandrel panels with new glass opaque spandrel panels. Um, completely changing the appearance of it from the outside, mm-hmm. um, helping to blend it in a little bit with some of the neighboring buildings that have been built since those buildings were constructed in the 60s and 70s, um, and also fairly significantly improving the thermal performance of the building, um, some of the solar heat gain characteristics of the building, uh, and occupant comfort from a, a drafty perspective. So tightening up the building and making it a little bit more airtight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, you know, it's currently under construction. It's quite a sight to see to walk down the street and see the uh, the protection that's up to to keep people safe and and the access that's being provided around the building, um, all while there are people working inside um, doing their day to day job. And finally, can you tell me a little bit about the Green Building Festival that's coming up? Uh, the Green Building Festival is an annual uh, conference being held by Sustainable Buildings Canada. Um, the year, this year's topic is on healthy buildings. Mm-hmm. The synopsis for my talk is uh, we often think of facades or skins as these kinds of static components that have no life, that just sort of present a buffer between us and the outdoors. Um, and I really think that we're looking for ways to think uh, on a grander scale mm-hmm. uh, of how building enclosures um, can contribute to health. And whether that's through, you know, filtering air or um, providing a a more comfortable interior environment or being dynamic in some way that responds to climate or responds to people or responds to use. Mm -hmm. Um, And so really, that's kind of what I would like to explore, not a building enclosure as this sort of kit of parts that comes to the site and is just sort of installed and and a stagnant piece, but something that is interactive and um, contributes to well-being. All right. Well, Scott, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. My pleasure. Thank you. Finally. When I spoke with Dan Rusegaard four years ago for Spacing.ca, he was pitching smart highways at DigiFest Toronto. He wanted people to see roadways as an interface instead of miles and miles of stagnant infrastructure. Interactive lights, weather warnings, electric priority lanes that could power cars as they drive were just a few of his ideas. He calls himself a happy infiltrator. We ask him about his innovations and the ethos behind them. So given that the the theme is uh, healthy buildings, healthy world, to you, where does design come in, into play in, in terms of uh, sustainability and resiliency? Well, I think a lot of the challenges we are facing today, uh, the rising sea level, the CO2 emissions, the traffic jams, in a way, uh, <clears throat> in a way are bad design. We, we, we have created it. Uh, so 
So we can do two things. We can either, you know, be, be, be sad or, or blame other people or, or we can design our way out of it. Uh, so I'll, I'll show the, that, that last scenario where we show bicycle paths which charge at daytime and glow at night um, or using the headlamps of, of the cars to make uh, light reflective uh, streetlights which use no energy mm-hmm. or the small free project which, uh, which suck up polluted air and release it. Uh, so we have clean air parks. So it's really about using design and technology to improve uh, the world around us. Right, and there's also uh, there's also a, a kind of a visual aesthetic component to your work. Uh, I mean, a, a lot of these interventions that you do are, are also quite beautiful to look at. Of course, I mean uh, that's the quote of uh, the famous quote of Madonna: eh? "We we live in a material world." <laughs> uh, so, so I think the notion of, of of beauty, but really showing that beauty can also be about clean air, clean water, and clean energy. Uh, that is something for me personally uh, that has a strong focus. Yeah, uh, and so uh, I, I may not be pronouncing this correctly, but uh, you, you are bringing the project uh, Waterlicht, is it, to Toronto? Yeah. So we're working with together with uh, the Bentway, yeah, who are part of the the yeah the the, re- the renovation, the reactivation uh, for the spaces underneath uh, at the highway underneath the garden, mm-hmm. and uh, we've been. We've been working with them in the last year, and Waterlicht is one of the first uh, concrete examples of that. Uh, a combination of LEDs and lenses which show how high water level would be uh, because of floods, because of rain, because of rising sea level. Um, and it's a very mesmerizing installation, also a bit scary, but also beautiful, um, making people aware of, of, of a world which is changing, but also triggering them to think what their role uh, uh, can be uh, in this in this future landscape, right? It's a bit of a call to arms. Yeah, and uh, exactly, and it's uh, free night, uh, open for public, no ticket needed, and uh, it's been in uh, the United Nations in New York before in Paris, but we're always working very hard to make a very site specific installation. Sure, you're right. I think it's as beautiful as as activating. Um, so we invite people to uh, to come and have uh, have their experience. Uh, uh, and also at the lecture, of course, where you get a more in-depth story behind the project. Um, and yeah, this uh, this project uh, is is coming in at a, a very timely moment for Toronto. We've we've experienced uh, two very bad days of flooding uh, just just from rainstorms alone, and uh, sort of a, a, a sewer system that has needs to be updated. And frankly, just a an increasingly sort of violent climate. <laughs> yeah, and and, I, and I'm afraid that, that that's going to be part of a new standard. Right. Uh, Places like Miami, but also Toronto, are uh, not resilient yet. So we have to invest in, in new ideas, in, in, in planning, in, in constructing a landscape which is future-proof. Um, and it's not a question of if you believe in it or not. That's just the way uh, our world is going to change. And, you know, I, I don't think we should be scared, but we should be curious and, and see this as a, as a moment to uh, rethink how we want our landscape and how we want our city uh, to look like. But right. yeah, you're right. We definitely need to start doing that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and because we're talking Green Building Festival, uh, I'd like to ask you about the smog-free towers. Yeah, so basically it's the largest smog vacuum cleaner in the world, okay. uh, which sucks up polluted air, cleans it, and then releases the clean air. So we have um, clean air parks, which are 20 to 70% more clean than the rest of the city. 
Uh, and that was the really way, you know, a lot of a lot of cities have become machines that are killing us uh, with their pollution, with their traffic jams, uh, with their, with their CO2 uh, emissions. And so, you know, why don't build machines that heal us, that can cure us, that can that can be good to us? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's the initiative of, of the of the clean air project uh, that that we've done in China, Poland, Netherlands, uh, and but now a lot of other cities are are calling us as well. And as well, the the impurities that uh, you collect using these uh, special towers, these these giant vacuum cleaners, as you call them, uh, they are reused and recycled as as uh, jewelry. Yeah, so we believe that waste should not exist. Eh? Waste for the one should be food for the other. Right. Uh, so we compress the collected small particles and realize that forty two forty eight percent is carbon. Carbon on the high pressure, you get diamonds. Right. That was a big inspiration. Uh, so we have small free rings and small free cufflinks. And by sharing uh, an item, you donate a thousand cubic meter of clean air to the city where the tower is in. And I think that's really important to make it very personal, to make it very tactile, to make it shareable. Um, a lot of these topics that we're talking about, uh, urban planning and the city challenges, are very abstract for a large group of people. And they uh, like, oh, yeah, the government should take care of it. Or, you know, it, it's not really... It doesn't have any influence on my life, but that's not true. Uh, uh, So as the Canadian author Marshall McLuhan said, on spacecraft Earth, there are no passengers. We are all crew. Right. So I think my job, my job as designer, as an architect is to personalize it, to visualize it. um, And then hopefully that activates people uh, to uh, enhance their notion of uh, crew, not just uh, passengership. Yeah. And this, these smog-free towers and, and a lot of the designs that uh, your studio uh, produces, they're, they're sort of scalable. These are solutions that you could export to any given city and, uh, you know, and put, the, put these towers uh, all over the city and sort of clean the air anywhere. Absolutely. Yeah, that, uh, we're, we're, we're good to go uh, to do that. Um, we always make sure it's part of a campaign, eh? so it should always be connected with long-term investment in, in green energy, more bicycles, more trees. But we also need uh, solutions today. Eh? Don't wait too long, five to ten years, too long. Um, and then a small free tower can, can give you a clean air parks. Uh, so absolutely, that's, uh, that, that's definitely uh, an option. I think all of these designs show that the city can be an incredibly fascinating canvas for new social interactions. And we can be scared of it and say, oh, uh, technology is going to dominate us and control and in some cases, this is also true, and we should be critical. But on the other hand, it can also be Leonardo da Vinci scenario, eh, where we learn how to communicate in a different way, or, or we, we tackle one of the teasing and, and frustrating problems that we have, such as traffic jams. But I think that's, that's the open conversation we need to have. Um, and, but let's not be afraid. Let's be curious. Yeah. And Don's Waterlicht project will be coming to Toronto this October. When we talk about environmental issues, we often leave buildings out of the conversation. We talk about industry, litter, and conservation, all crucial conversations, don't get me wrong. But within our cities, we have a massive stock of buildings. Years ago, these buildings were simply practical in design. They were built to be offices, homes, or campuses. If they were aesthetically pleasing, well, so much the better. 
But in recent years, we've started talking about making our buildings work for us. We've used them to reduce energy consumption. We've installed green roofs to improve air quality and reduce what's known as the heat island effect. There are moral and monetary reasons to tackle this. Healthy buildings mean a healthy planet. And that's a conversation worth having. Let's keep it going. And that's the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to hear more from our guests and many others, early bird registration for the Green Building Festival is open until August 31st. Buy tickets at gbf18.eventbrite.com, that's B-R-I-T-E, and save some money. The festival again is October 11th. If you like this episode, please tell your installation art enthusiasts, your community association, and your rooftop gardener. As always, a like, share, subscribe, or ratings on iTunes will go a long way to help us reach new listeners, so give us a moment if you can. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can tweet at us at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glynbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our blog at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. This episode is presented in partnership with Sustainable Buildings Canada. For more information about SBC and the Green Building Festival, check out sbcanada.org and gbf18.com. In the meantime, go be a happy infiltrator. Cheers. Cheers.